Hey, Velocity, good morning. It's great to be worshiping with you again this Sunday. And today we're starting a brand new sermon series, and we're going to be looking at who Jesus is. And not, not in a theoretical way, and not in a way in which I tell you who I think Jesus is, but based on his very own words and how he describes himself. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the three biographies of Jesus that are very closely related to each other, Jesus asks his followers who people say that he is. And there are some different answers that the disciples give. Some people think that Jesus is representative of other prophets. And then Jesus dials it in a little bit further and he says, who do you say that I am as, as my followers? And Peter, one of his closest followers and friends, responds that Jesus is the Christ. And while that is a true answer, it's not wholly descriptive of who Jesus is. Over the centuries, people have been filling the blanks in for that question in a lot of different ways. You ask one person, they might say, well, who is Jesus? Jesus is love or Jesus is grace or Jesus is mercy. And, and while all those things are true as well, in John's gospel, which is just like Matthew, Mark, and Luke and being a biography of Jesus' life, Jesus describes himself with seven different metaphors to give us a picture of who he is. And as he does that, as he gives these word pictures that describe his character and his nature, Jesus starts each of those phrases with two very important words. He says the words, I am. And so before we get, ever get into the metaphor of who Jesus is, Jesus uses this very important phrase that, in particular, his Jewish followers would perk up and, and recognize as something that they know is taught way back in the Old Testament. And if you look in Exodus chapter 3, God is interacting with one of the Israelite nation's most famous leaders, Moses, and he introduces himself. And Moses is the guy who brings down the Ten Commandments from, from the mountain. He's the leader and liberator of the Israelite nation after 400 years of slavery. And when God explains who he is to Moses, Moses says, who should I tell these people who sent me? God says, tell them I am sent you. And so when Jesus uses these words, he's equating himself with God. He's calling back to that way in which God described himself. God is simply saying, hey, I exist. I was in the past. I'm in the present. I will continue to be in the future at the exclusion of all else, all other gods, all other beliefs, all other philosophies. I am. I am true reality. I exist. In fact, as the Israelite nation starts to get to know God a little bit more intimately, Yahweh becomes the name that they use to refer to him. Yahweh simply means he is, and so it's connected to that same I am statement that, G that God uses. But they revere that so much, and they don't want to break the third commandment of taking God's name in vain, that they end up stop saying Yahweh. In fact, even when they wrote it, they would remove the vowels out of that because of how revered that became. But that description, especially as Jesus uses that for himself, says a lot about what he's communicating about his nature and what God is doing by sending him to the world. He's not just using a metaphor to describe himself, he's also claiming equality with God. And so as we look at each of these seven I am statements from Jesus, they're going to give us a picture of who God is to us. The first is from John chapter 6, in which Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
As always, it's important to understand the context of what's going on as you jump into a text. And so there are a couple things that are happening that are really important in John chapter 6 before we ever get to the statement from Jesus. The first is that Jesus performs one of his most famous miracles. He feeds 5,000 people. Actually, it's over 5,000 people because that number only counted men, not women and children. So there are a ton of people there that Jesus uses just a little bit of food from a small boy, a couple of fish, and five loaves of bread, and makes this miraculous supper out of hardly anything. So much that there's enough for everybody to eat. There's 12 basketfuls of food left over. And so there are literally thousands of people who have started to surround Jesus that know about him, that know about his ministry, that that are curious about what he's teaching, that are blown away by his miracles. And they followed him to this remote area where Jesus performs this miracle. I mean, there's no dominoes around to order pizzas for all these people. And so Jesus does this amazing thing. The crowd is enamored with Jesus because not only have they found food, um, they found someone who they want to follow. And and he does these amazing things. And in John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, we see how much they like Jesus. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, it's really interesting that these people were so enamored with Jesus, but they also missed who he was and who he came to be because they think, oh man, now he's the solution to our political problems that we find ourselves in. We're occupied by this other force. We can finally get rid of them. Jesus is the one who has come to do this, but Jesus slips away. And in fact, this sets up another pretty significant miracle in John chapter 6, where Jesus goes away by himself to a mountain. His disciples get on a boat and go over across the Sea of Galilee to the town of Capernaum. And Jesus ends up meeting up with them on the water because he walks to them on the water. And so you can check that out in John chapter 6 as well. But the next day, this huge crowd want to know where Jesus is. They had a great meal the day before, and so they're looking for him. They want to know what he's up to. That supper was good, but they're hungry again, so they start looking for him. And they find him, like I mentioned, in Capernaum on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In John chapter 6, verses 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus has this habit of getting directly to the heart of the matter. And he knew that these crowds of people that were enamored with him, you know, wasn't necessarily even because of who he was, because of what he did for them, what he had provided for them. And so Jesus' ego wasn't enlarged. He knew exactly why they were there. They were there because they wanted more, more food. Even though he was healing people, he was raising people from the dead, he was taking on the establishment, um, he's talking about this kingdom that would never end that he came to establish, but that's not what everybody had attracted, uh, what had attracted everyone to him. And Jesus know this, knows this. He knows that sometimes we're more prone to be led by the appetites of our body rather than we are by the conviction of our hearts. 
And Jesus wants them to see that there's more to living for him than just having our earthly needs met or even just being happy. And not because God doesn't want those things for us, but because sometimes they're not possible based on how we define those things. And so we continue on in the text in John chapter 6, verse 28. And the people asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Listen, it's easy to make life a lot more complicated than what it really is. And a lot of times it's our decision-making, our sin, or maybe it's the sin of other people that causes it to be more complicated than what God ever intended for us to experience. And yet when the people come together and they want to know from Jesus, hey, what, what is it that we should do? How should we respond in the proper way since you've let us know that we aren't? Jesus says it's to believe in the one whom God has sent. And he's talking about himself. And, and the more that I live life, the more that I realize that, that having faith in Jesus and allowing that to direct how I walk, how I talk, how I think, how I process what's going on around me, that is truly what is fulfilling. All the other pursuits, all the other wish fulfillment that I desire in my life, it it never, even when I get the thing I want, it never truly satisfies because it's a different area of my life that I really need to be sustained and satisfied. And Jesus is the only one who can do that. The crowds aren't satisfied with what Jesus has said in his response. And so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so they're referring again back into the Old Testament uh, to a miracle that God had done uh, when Moses, again, was leader of the nation of Israel, where God provided this bread called manna. And they're looking again for those physical needs to be met. Hey, Moses gave us bread. Where's, where's your sign? Now, if I'm Jesus here and these people are telling me this, you know, I, well, it's a good thing I'm not Jesus because we'd all be in trouble if that were the case. But if I were in Jesus' shoes and these people started saying, hey, what are you going to do? Like, what's your next trick to prove to us that we should believe what you have to say? Um, I'd be like, sign? You, you mean like, you know, that time where I turned water into wine? Or you remember that, that girl that I raised from the dead? Or, hey, how about, you know, yesterday when, when I fed you fish sandwiches out of just a, a boy's small lunch and you're asking for a sign? Like, what's, what's going on here? What are you really after? I've been doing many signs and miracles. And in fact, I've got these Jewish leaders over here that, that are harping on me because of this. And, and the Jewish leaders would pop out and be like, yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, we're questioning where he got the power to do that. What sign? Dude, you, you know, do you, do you understand where this meal that you just ate came from? And you'd have this little boy that popped up and he said, yeah, he, he took my lunch and, and I've still got a backpack full, full of bread left over. That's what, that's what I would have wanted to say. That's how I would have wanted to react. But Jesus says something else. Jesus says to them in verse 32 of chapter 6, Very truly I tell to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so Jesus starts by correcting their misunderstanding of their own history. Uh, This manna that Moses provided actually didn't come from him. God the Father provided that. 
And then Jesus, in the, same ter- in the same turn, teaches that the miracles of God were always meant to point to one thing, and that is true life with him. In John chapter 6, verse 34, the crowd say, Sir, they said, always give us this bread, because that kind of bread sounds amazing. There are so many <laughs> delicious ways in which provided bread can sustain us and give us life. Uh, biscuits, for, for example, a good southern biscuit, uh, that's Man, that's, that's life-giving. Uh, some good yeast rolls. My mom bakes the, makes the best homemade bread ever. Uh, toast it with just a little bit of butter, and I'm telling you, there's, there's nothing better that you've ever had on this planet. But Jesus isn't talking about physical bread, and he's not just talking about bread you can eat. He's not just not talking about bread you can eat either. He's not talking about financial bread. He's not, not talking about economic bread. He's not talking about health bread or career bread or even family bread. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And we talked about the significance of those first two words, I am, early on. The second, uh, the third significant word that Jesus uses in that phrase is life. Because Jesus doesn't use just any word. In fact, there are multiple different words for life within the Greek language. Two are used primarily in the New Testament. And the one that Jesus uses is, means something very specific. The most basic word for life is bios, like where we get the word biology from. And that means life from nature. What life is like as we go about our business and how we eat, all of those kinds of things. It's physical life. But when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, he doesn't use bios. He uses another Greek word, and it's the word zoe. Zoe is deeper than just physical life. If bios is life from nature, zoe would be more like life from the divine. Real, true life. Existence. Not being dead or not existing at all. The opposite of that. It's spiritual life. It's eternal life. The opposite of non-existence. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he writes about this, and he describes the difference between these two types of life like this. A man who changed from having bios to having zoe would have gone through as big a change as a statue, which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And so when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, uh, he's the bread that doesn't just keep you alive, but gives you true life, life the way in which God always meant for it to exist, divine life. And these people were hungry, and they wanted their bellies filled, and and he did that. And Jesus responds that way uh, to physical needs many times. Uh, Even a meal uh, solves some problems for for a short period of time. That's why the first thing Jesus always did to show his love was to meet a physical need. He gave of his time. He helped restore sight. He fed people. Those needs matter, but they're also temporary. I love my mom's homemade bread, but I also know that once I finish eating it, it's, it's gone, and I'm not going to get it again until it's made. Uh, it can't, I cannot rely on it to fulfill my need for the spiritual sustenance that my soul requires. And I think a lot of us can relate to this. Our self-esteem is crushed, and we think, oh man, if I could just, if I could just knock out 10 pounds, and I'd look better, I'd feel better, and, and everything would be great in my life. You're stressed out because of work or whatever's going on in your situation, and so you self-medicate in some way. 
We're not feeling cherished, and so we're willing to compromise ourselves and relationships to hook up with anybody. We don't feel respected at work, and so we take it out on the people who are closest to us at home. And the issue is that we can't fix a soul-deep problem with a skin-deep solution. And Jesus says, you're hungry, and you're looking for food in all the wrong places, but what you crave is found through me. Jesus declares he is the bread of life, and whoever comes to him won't go hungry and will never thirst again. Around the world, bread means sustenance. It means life. And we all need physical food. We all have physical needs in order to survive. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll also admit that there's something deeper that needs to be fulfilled. Early in Jesus' life, in fact, before his ministry begins, in Matthew chapter 4, we find one example of Satan, the enemy, the liar, the father of lies, uh, tempting Jesus to try to throw him off from the course that was set before him. And one of the first things that he does is he tempts Jesus with food. Jesus has been fasting and praying in preparation for his ministry to begin for 40 days. And, and Satan says, hey, you've got the power. You can turn these stones that are right over here. You can turn those into bread and be sustained. And yet Jesus' response to that is, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Look, life is a roller coaster. There are plenty ups and downs. We're trying to lay, constantly trying to figure out how to go from those downs to that next up, uh, maybe by finding a new toy or a new relationship or a new car, a new job, a new purpose, a new degree, a new cable package, new economy, new politicians, another theory that satisfies our need to have some narrative of control in our lives. But Jesus is the answer. He's the bread of life that sustains, that satisfies, and that gives us true life. Later, in John chapter 6, out of the same crowds of people that have seen Jesus do these amazing things, that have heard his teaching, they, uh, they actually walk away from him because they find his teaching too difficult and too narrow and too restrictive. But Jesus doesn't back away. Instead, he doubles down and says that the life of flesh, our physical life, it doesn't really count for anything. Instead, the spiritual life is where real living comes from. And so may our lives be marked by that pursuit. And what we say and what we do and what we think direct others to that same true life that Jesus sustains and satisfies us with. In that same passage, Jesus says that people are going to consume his body. And that's part of the reason why this was such a tough teaching for them. But what he's referring to is what he's about to do on the cross and what we do every week at Velocity when we take communion together. Because what we do when we take that little bit of bread and that little bit of juice that represents his broken body and his shed blood is that we remind ourselves that what we're relying on in this life is the true life that Jesus gives us, the new life that he sustains in us through the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, as we share in this time of communion together, I just want to encourage you to be reminded that whatever other pursuit, whatever type of bread that you are looking for in this life, recognize that that will never sustain and satisfy nearly as much as a life that is centered on who Jesus is and what he provides for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you as we take this, this bread and drink this cup that we're reminded that 
you are the bread of life. That you come down to us, that you know what it, exactly what it's like to live life as we do. And through that all, you remain the perfect sacrifice for us so that we could experience and we can experience, we can be redeemed and reconciled to live and look forward to, live out and look forward to the life that you give us through Jesus. God, we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.